All right, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you March 8th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast, where we believe in empowerment through knowledge. Today, we're going to be discussing unemployment and what employment is, the impacts of unemployment, causes of unemployment, how unemployment is measured, unemployment statistics versus people's personal experience, and what you should do personally to avoid unemployment. Today, the show is co-hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, along with Reed Ianson and Murray Williams. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going, everyone? Okay, so uh, let's just lead straight into it. Let's go into what unemployment is. Reed, if you could start us there. Yeah, unemployment is not too difficult a concept to understand. It's really just out of those who are in your labor force within a given country, it's those who don't have a job and are currently looking for one. It's also expressed as a percentage of people, the workforce, the percentage of the population that's actually out of work. Yeah. And this statistic is tracked in the U.S. to gauge the health of the economy, to say how many people are not employed, what they call gainfully employed. They have a job where they're earning an income that's supporting them financially. So when in the U.S., when they're tracking this rate, they're measuring people who not only don't have a job, but also want to have a job because there are some people who don't have a job and aren't looking for one. And they're not included in the unemployment statistics that we track in the U.S. So that's a function of what they call the total labor force. So people who are either working or capable of working. So, for example, 85-year-olds are not considered part of the labor force, and 5-year-olds are not considered part of the labor force. And back in December of 2016, unemployment was all the way down to 4.7%, which is quite low for historical standards. I think it's also important to note that there are unemployment statistics that take into account a total labor force that is different from what you just defined. It's just not the official rate that is published in all the newspapers every month, but you can find that data. From your personal perspective, do you see any merits in looking at different kinds? Sure, if you have a specific reason to, but it's really important to understand that all of these different series that we look at that define the labor force differently typically move together. So your main published unemployment rate moves down half a percent over a three-month period. Typically, all your other series move about the same amount. And so really, when you look at unemployment, it's where is it moving? How is it moving over time? Not necessarily the absolute number. In the U.S., the labor force, just to give everyone a feel for it, the statistics that they measure, we're talking about civilians that are over the age of 16 and employed or looking for work. And in the U.S., back in December, that was about 160 million people. And then another thing that is looked at with respect to unemployment is labor force participation, which is a similar measure where it's essentially people that are employed versus the total population. And again, just as a benchmark, the total U.S. population is 310 to 320 million people. And to give some historical perspective on labor force participation, you saw this rise a lot through the late 20th century as more women came into the workforce. But as of the last few years, especially following the financial crisis, the labor force participation has somewhat eroded as less people are looking for a job or more people have left the labor force completely just because they've given up or they've grown older and have retired as well. 
And that kind of goes into an interesting question about the statistics is that when someone stops looking for work, so they're taken out of the total employment picture, that'll actually reduce the unemployment rate. And my question is, how do they define someone who stopped looking for work? And let's say someone who stopped looking for work decides to start looking again. How is he brought back into that pool? Typically, so, it's it's literally just a survey. One of the questions on that survey is, are you currently looking for work or would you like a job? And if they say no, then you're not in the labor force anymore. Obviously, a statistically significant sample, though. So, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is pretty good at what they do. It's kind of interesting because it's like a lot of people have criticized is the Bureau of Labor Statistics fudging their numbers for political reasons. You know no, I mean? because the Bureau of Labor Statistics is largely... There are a lot of firewalls that prevent that from happening. So the president, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Trump influencing that process. But the reality is that it would be very difficult for him to influence that kind of reporting, mm-hmm. um, like on unemployment, for example, just because there's a lot of automated processes that happen and a lot of firewalls. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics officially surveys about 147,000 businesses or government agencies and another 634,000 individuals or individual work sites. So basically what this means is you're looking at well over half a million surveys every month in order to try and gauge where unemployment is at in the United States. Okay. And it's a random sample, obviously. So... Mm-hmm so that you can reduce bias within your data. Okay, so let's get into some of the impacts of unemployment. Murray, can you walk us through some of the things that happened back in the Great Depression and how unemployment played out then? Yeah, unemployment is something that policymakers have been trying to figure out and how to alleviate for a long time. And John Maynard Keynes was probably the original economist that was brought in to try to solve this problem. And I mean, his theory was that everything was centered around something called aggregate demand. And the way to stimulate aggregate demand basically is to basically have either the government spend a lot of money, deficit spending, as well as lowering taxes. But as far as the, the impact of unemployment, it's especially when it comes to the Great Depression or any kind of recessionary period, it's very damaging to the political party in power. And if people are supposed to be out of work for a long time and a lot of people are starving with soup kitchens. And people end up, people see a problem and then they blame, okay, this party is in power or this person is in power, so it's their fault. It should be noted, too, that Keynes really had a two-part theory. The first was fiscal policy, and the second was monetary policy. Obviously, fiscal policy has two branches, both of which can stimulate an economy, and that's either through tax cuts or direct government spending. Right. Monetary policy has to deal with the manipulation of interest rates and the money supply in order to drive investment within an economy. And also, it's just the micro form is that individuals just don't like being out of work for long periods of time because, you know, man, it just hurts their families. And so it hurts society as a whole, man, as, as well as individually. And that's kind of how the, the way I look at it is you have the impact on an individual level, but then also the impact on a societal level. And on an individual level, it can be quite discouraging where people find a sense of purpose and meaning from their work. And if they don't have work or employment, that can be psychologically demoralizing. It's also important to note that with unemployment, most of it is automatic spending within the United States. And so a huge cost is obviously unemployment insurance, which is provided by our government. When you go into a period of recession, it's not like Congress makes some declaration or outlay. 
it simply occurs, right? And so in times of recession, you're going to have more outlay from the government, which means that government spending is going to rise. And typically what you'll see with that, sometimes not always, is that rising government spending will push up interest rates and actually crowd out other types of investment. So it's difficult to say whether government spending in the context of unemployment will actually help or hurt an economy in the short run. Unemployment in the short run will typically be rather volatile around a business cycle, whereas you have over the long run what's known as a long run rate of employment, which is what we consider full employment. That is, your economy is at a level of unemployment where you have an optimal number of people in jobs because you don't want to be fully employed with 0% unemployment. You want some people moving between jobs because that's healthy for an economy. And so again, you draw that juxtaposition between the short run, which is volatile unemployment that typically fluctuates around short run business cycles and long run unemployment, which deals with typically a, a long run rate that fluctuates only a little bit. Bring it back again to the impacts of unemployment on society. I'd say that you can potentially see a loss of productivity because if people are coming up with ideas, but there's no cash flow through the economy, then good ideas can't get funding. And this is a tough question to answer, right? Because your lost resource of labor that occurs when you have unemployment, it might be because you have displacement because of investment in capital. So that might be a positive or negative, right? So it's difficult to say. You might be going through a structural change where companies are just investing more in capital and less in labor. That could actually be improving productivity. So it's a hard line to understand whether it's a net positive or negative. But it still could cause more unemployment if they're oh, yeah. investing in more capital. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd say another impact of unemployment on a societal level is that then government sees less tax revenue because there's less people earning income and then paying taxes. And like you said, Reed, about then if there's a recession and higher unemployment, the government has to end up paying out more in unemployment benefit programs, which can then, if there's high unemployment, then that can cause decreased faith in the government, like we were saying before. And I think if it gets bad enough, you look at like Venezuela, where unemployment is ridiculously high right now, that can even cause more crime in the society. Just because if people don't have a good job that they risk losing, if they commit crime and they're not able to get the things that they need, then they have less incentive not to commit crime. Yeah, social costs are huge. Crime, even income inequality and depression reduces productivity within an economy. Those are huge social costs that we often don't take account of. Not to mention even the healthcare spending, which there's a relationship between unemployment and spending on healthcare. Let's move into causes of unemployment. Reed, what are some of the things that you look to for causes of unemployment? Actually, I could add a couple of those. Yeah. Uh, to me, there is a couple of things that could cause unemployment because unemployment is such a complicated issue. But I would say that welfare spending can be a cause of unemployment because it de-incentivizes the ability to work. And there was a famous economist that says if you want to stop unemployment or alleviate it, you should increase the incentive to work and decrease the incentive to non-work. Because if you've got a bunch of people who are on welfare and food stamps, they're not going to be motivated to work. And I've heard arguments that when food stamps or unemployment benefits run out, actually the unemployment rate drops because people, they're really motivated to go find work and go find jobs because they're getting hungry. And so that could be one cause that a lot of people don't touch on. Another one is, is the minimum wage, 
which we've kind of touched on in previous podcasts, that if the minimum wage gets too high, you're going to put lower skilled people out of work. And that can be a problem as well. And another thing that we've touched on as well is one of my personal convictions is that the leverage of the banking sector can cause unemployment after when the economy finally crashes because of the over leverage of, of the system. But that's kind of a different issue that has to do with unemployment when the economy is just going through a, a contraction, going through a downturn. I'll touch upon just your traditional causes of unemployment. The first is frictional, and this is your typical time spent between jobs. This is not necessarily a problem. It's a pretty normal type of unemployment. And actually, you want to see some frictional, frictional unemployment because businesses need to find workers too. And if there are no workers available, that's also a problem. The second kind of unemployment is structural. This is the most worrying. Structural unemployment is unemployment that occurs from changes within an industry that typically push out workers. And this is very typical within the manufacturing industry over the past 30 years within the United States as the industry has grown technologically more efficient. Workers have become much less relevant and much less needed. And this is a huge problem because these workers can't just go somewhere else and find another job. They're going to be the workers who are long-term unemployed, and that's a huge problem. Third is your cyclical unemployment. Again, this is not a, this is not a bad type of an unemployment. This is natural unemployment that you see through time. And this is just where a guy loses a job because the economy goes into recession for a while. But on the flip side, when an economy is going through a cycle of expansion, you're going to have more people getting hired. So it's, it's your typical fluctuations of economic growth around your long run average. I think that kind of taps into what Murray was just mm-hmm. saying about the, the banking leverage where you're going to have these cycles of yeah. credit cycles of yeah. credit expansion and credit contraction. Yeah. And Murray's really touching on a, an interesting point on that. The leverage that we've seen in the banking industry is causing our cyclical fluctuations to be much too large. And why they allow for huge swings higher, or that is huge expansions, they also allow for huge contractions. And I think I would agree with Murray, those are too large for the United States and they cause a lot more harm than good. When I look at the economy of China over the past couple of years, and there have been years when China went through double-digit growth, I didn't really realize this until recently that the Chinese banking sector is incredibly over-leveraged, more so than any other country on earth. And so I wonder if there's a correlation there between the massive economic growth of China and the massive leverage of their banking sector. And <laughs> For sure. And I think that brings it back to the point of once a credit contraction occurs and then an economy goes into a recession, businesses, in order to make sure that they balance their budgets, cut back on spending. And the easiest way, the most effective way to do that often is cutting headcount. And so that then ends up contributing to unemployment in those recessionary times. And we saw that in 2009, where businesses were laying off people and unemployment went up. Going back to long-term structural unemployment, Rita, I want to ask you, for instance, the manufacturing sector in this country has really been devastated and former factories in terms of workers, labor, right? And labor. And a lot of these people are left without work who used to have like vibrant manufacturing jobs. Do you think that a lot of those guys should probably upgrade their skills and then retool into something different? That is a probably a long discussion for a different podcast that I'd love to have, but that's a long discussion. <laughs> 
that I could answer, but I'm not, I'm not going to go into here. Pretty much to summarize what you were saying is that total unemployment number is a function of frictional unemployment, structural unemployment, and then cyclical. And I should also say uh, before I, before I mention this is a smaller piece, but seasonal unemployment also occurs. So if it's the summertime and you work for a bathing suit company, you might have to hire more people because it's the summertime and you're producing more and more people are buying your goods, right? So seasonal unemployment is also, also true. And then when it comes to the government and their measures to deal with unemployment, I think this goes back to what Murray was talking about in terms of fiscal stimulus. The idea being the government trying to alleviate cycles in the economy and, and alleviate the problems of unemployment at times. So some of the things that they try to do are in those recessionary times are things like cut taxes or invest in infrastructure projects when private enterprise is not or hire government workers or provide benefits to unemployed workers. And in theory, the natural level of unemployment is quite conceptual, but that could be a quite low number. Nobody really knows what that exactly should be. The Fed says it should be around 4.6, 4.5%. But again, that's... You mean 4.44739%? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if we just think of it conceptually, in terms of societally, how we could reduce unemployment... I think one of the best ways to do that is to have an educated population. And the more education and skills that we have, the, skilled, right? yeah. Yeah, the more knowledge and skills each of the people of a society have, the more everybody in that economy is able to contribute and, and be a valuable member where they're in demand. I also think if there's a reduction in access to unsecured credit, that would help alleviate some of the uh, cyclical unemployment where we had a lot of unemployment in the recession in 09 because there were a lot of people that got access to mortgages who couldn't afford them. And then when their interest rates went up, that started causing them financial stress and then they couldn't make their payments. And then that started causing banking problems, which then caused problems throughout the economy. And then people lose their jobs and it all feeds into it. I'd like to add something. This has kind of happened about this train of thought started in the 1960s and Milton Friedman was one of the advocates. And it's basically economists and policymakers noticed a, a correlation between inflation and unemployment. Basically, when there's higher rates of inflation, there's lower unemployment or greater employment. And so the policymakers back then got together. So they tried to use monetary policy to try to peg a level of unemployment. But the problem with that is so they thought that, well, if we just create inflation, then it'll make the economy better. But there's too much of a good thing. And so they tried to do that too much. In the late 1970s, we had this concept called stagflation, which is basically high unemployment with high inflation at the same time. And it was definitely an error in policy. And it caused Jimmy Carter to lose the presidency to Ronald Reagan. And so that's one of the problems with trying to use Keynesian fiscal stimulus on the demand side with government spending and then trying to increase or help the economy using monetary policy by just devaluing the currency. What do you think, Reid? Yeah, there were the 1970s. There was a lot going on. Uh, you also had oil prices playing into that mix. I would say that was a piece of the puzzle. The Fed was over easing because they mistook mistook the supply shock within the energy industry and specifically the crude market. So your your supply curve for crude shifted left, which means that monetary policy needs to be handled differently. 
Anyway, the problem was in the 1970s, they, the Fed misunderstood that it was what was causing problems within the economy was the fact that you had a supply shock mm-hmm. on oil that pushed the supply curve left, which means interest rates move higher and pushed growth lower. That implies that you actually need to raise interest rates, not lower them. So they were lowering interest rates thinking it was a demand shock when in reality it was a supply shock and you actually need to raise interest rates. And that's what Paul Volcker did in the early 1980s to deal with that problem because he realized that. Anyway, that also could be a whole other podcast. Just to summarize my points there, I think there's a couple different ways we can reduce unemployment. If you target each piece of the puzzle at once, I think we can reduce structural unemployment through education. I think we could potentially reduce cyclical unemployment through reduction in the access to unsecured credit. I think we could reduce frictional unemployment through improving the job search and employee search technology. And each of those pieces of the puzzle could, I think, in theory, bring down the natural level of unemployment. And it should be noted, cyclicality is defined by a society. So you can look to Europe on an average basis. They have smaller cyclical fluctuations because they've decided as a society, we want more regulation, more oversight than the United States has decided to have. So it's really a decision that you have to make as a societal body. And then in terms of how unemployment is measured, how exactly do they do that? And who is they? Yeah, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is a government agency under the executive branch, sends a survey out every month to approximately 60,000 households or about 110,000 individuals. This is a statistically significant sample. The data is grouped into about 2,000 geographic areas and about 40,000 of those areas actually represent what's in the number each month. Again, this is completely randomly selected, and these individuals will answer a variety of questions. Are they employed? Who are they employed by? How long have they been employed? How long have they been unemployed? Questions that are relatively obvious um, to indicate who is working and who isn't within an economic system. And it should be said that the reliability of these estimates is pretty high. The BLS estimates that surveys are upwards of 90% reliable, and you'll probably see a bounded range of between 2 and 4% in terms of the survey data that's collected in terms of it actually being correct. It could be off 2 to 4%. And then in terms of personal experience with unemployment, I think statistics feel very detached. But then to bring it down to a personal level, I graduated from undergrad in 2009. I picked probably the worst year in 75 years to graduate. Well, I didn't pick it, but... (laughs) (laughs) You were dealt it. It was not a fun year to graduate. Poor timing, yeah. So I moved down to Atlanta. I was in a house with four other roommates. And I had to work a 100% commission sales job where I'm knocking door to door. And this is like how I was trying to make ends meet. Not an optimal situation. Unemployment was pretty bad in 2009. I mean, I was doing the sales job. Then I ended up catting at a golf course. That was what I had to do to pull myself out of unemployment at that point in time, fresh out of college. And when times were that tight, a lot of businesses didn't want to hire undergrads with no experience when they could hire people with advanced degrees for the same wages. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's all about labor supply and labor demand. So that will fluctuate through time based on what your economy is doing. So play your cards right when you have the advantage and know when you don't. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can attest to the fact of unemployment and kind of goes back to my previous point about welfare de-incentivizing work. And I remember this one time when I was laid off and I got unemployment insurance for about six or eight weeks. 
And I, you know, I was kind of looking for a job and I was checking the, the ads and everything, but then my unemployment benefits ran out. I got no money coming in and I started to get hungry and I was motivated to find a job pretty darn quick. And I got, I found a job within a couple of days. I mean, it's, it has to do with the, the kind of skills you have and whether those skills are in demand or not. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a younger guy, so I was still in high school during the financial crisis, and I came out of college well after the financial crisis. A lot of people were looking to hire in my demand area, so I honestly haven't, thankfully, I have not experienced even frictional unemployment at this point in my career, but that's just lucky for when I came out of school. So Hopefully that continues. I hope so. Knock on wood. <laughs> Okay, so then let's talk about some of the things people should be doing to avoid unemployment over the course of their careers. Yeah, it's probably two big points. First, learn specialized skills Mm -hmm. to build relationships and network. Don't just apply through LinkedIn and, and never go out of your house. Meet people, get to know people. If you work hard, those people that you know will go to bat for you when you need them. And in terms of skills, try and as best you can not look at what's in demand today, but what will be in demand in the next decade. Because you're going to be working for a long time. Yeah. And to be honest, what's in demand today will not be what's in demand in 20 years from now. Think about what's going to make you marketable for a long period of time or what's going to allow you to remain successful in terms of marketable skills for a long period of time. It's hard. So you're saying it might not be the best idea to try to go into the coal industry right now? (laughs) Probably not. No, definitely not. Maybe pick natural gas instead. Well, also, when we're talking about a career, if you're in school picking what skills to learn and you're 20 years old, you're talking about 40 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even something that could look either good tomorrow, 10 years, 20 years might not be a long enough vision because you're working 40 years. To be more specific about what you were just saying, the way I see the world headed, I think regardless of almost any industry or interest that you might be going into, having knowledge about computer programming and coding and technology is going to have extreme relevance in the foreseeable future. And it almost doesn't matter what field you go into, those skills are going to be useful and transferable because you really want to be learning transferable skills where if you're learning something that only applies to that employer and you get laid off, then what other employer is going to want to hire you for that? Yeah, without, you know, it's interesting because um, I think it's so important that we emphasize over time being able to take on skills. Taking on skills does not end when you leave school. It's a consistent process over time to stay relevant. And you've got to really be willing to continue to want to learn through time or you're going to have a tough go staying relevant as a worker. Absolutely. you got to continually yeah. upgrade your skills to yeah. the, the industries and skills that are high in demand. Absolutely. Just coming down to a personal level, if you prove yourself as an invaluable worker to your colleagues and your bosses, if you work hard, you work efficiently, you take initiative and you come up with ideas that weren't just told to you and you add value to an organization, people are going to see that over time and know that you're a valuable employee. And so even if you change companies or if you end up unemployed, maybe someone you worked with is going to respect the work that you did there and establish a connection with someone else that you didn't know, or at least put you in contact with someone or put in a good word for you elsewhere. So just being an invaluable worker is going to pay off too. 
And uh, something else as far as to protect yourself from unemployment, especially to protect yourself from cyclical unemployment, is if you're in a cyclical industry, is don't get a car on credit and don't get a home on credit. I think you should own a, at least own a car free and clear and your house if possible. Because if you're in a cyclical industry and you end up losing your job, you're going to end up losing your car and your house too. Yeah, use use cyclicality to your advantage. You will make a lot of money in an expansion, and you will not have a lot of money in a contraction. So use it to your advantage. Pay that stuff off in an expansion, and then when you're in a then when when things aren't so great, you've dealt with the issues that you have in the good times. I mean, you can get a car that runs and gets you from A to B for under five thousand bucks instead of paying forty thousand bucks on a brand new car. Okay, that pretty much sums things up. We covered what unemployment is, some of the impacts of unemployment and causes of unemployment, and then how it's measured by the government, and some personal anecdotes, and then what you should do to personally avoid unemployment. So hopefully that's useful going forward in your careers. So catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. 